Resolute Square. There was also maintained what was called an enemy's list, which was rather extensive and continually being updated. Democrats want Republicans dead. Where I could stand in the middle of Fifth Avenue and shoot somebody and I wouldn't lose any voters, okay? The women with the least likelihood of getting pregnant are the ones most worried about having abortions. On January 6th of 2021, you had tens of thousands of people peacefully protesting. No, it's not a right-wing conspiracy theory. It's not QAnon. It's real. <laughs> I'm Rick Wilson, and this is The Enemies List. Joining us today on The Enemies List, we are proud to welcome Sherilyn Ifill. Uh, Sherilyn Ifill is a American civil rights attorney. She holds the Vernon Jordan Chair of Civil Rights at Howard University, former president director of the NAACP Legal Defense Fund, and is one of the people that understands right now the challenges to voting rights and civil rights in the country at a level that few other people uh, do with with the amount of clarity and, and resolution that she does. So, Sherilyn, thank you so much for joining us today, and welcome to the Enemies List. I'm thrilled to be on. Well, I want to start out by by asking you about where you see the status of voting rights in this country right now. It is something that as a non-attorney and, and as just an, an, an old elections guy, I feel like it is a that we're facing a, a mounting set of well-constructed, well-thought-out, very frankly sort of evil challenges to voting rights in the country. And I'm hoping we can get your perspective on that because I think it's a growing and dangerous movement in the country. Yeah, that is absolutely true. Of course, it has a very long pedigree and it's important for people to understand uh, that this is not a new phenomenon uh, in American life or in American politics. And that's part of the story because what we are seeing now is built on a platform that was created and existed for a very long time. And so the current um, purveyors of voter suppression and those who are, in my view, seeking quite deliberately to upend our democracy by essentially manipulating our voting and our election system, uh, have available to them all of the arguments that were utilized uh, in decades earlier, arguments, at least in my view, were, uh, had been discredited then and were of dubious uh, integrity uh, decades ago, but they they have been there. They have leached into the uh, the way that judges think about election law and voting. Uh, they have um, been incubated in the public and among think tanks. And so the whole concept, for example, of voter fraud or ballot security uh, has been around for you know it was a tactic used by Jesse Helms and you know and, and, <laughs> and, and so it's been around for a very long time. And so the current users of this of this um, tactic have available to them all of those arguments and they have built on them, uh, but they are singularly more ambitious than those who came before them. And that ambition, I think, is very threatening to our democracy. I think that's exactly right. And we see it running in, I think, parallel tracks. At the federal level, there are there's a, a very well-funded effort to basically finally sort of try to kill off the Voting Rights Act at the federal level. Um, and at the state levels, you're seeing a lot of these sort of uh, you know, Jim Crow light kind of efforts 
to disenfranchise, particularly African-American voters, what are the worst states that you can think of and, and, and some of the worst uh, approaches on this that you can think of that are happening out in the state levels first? Then I want to talk about the, the federal challenges. Okay. Well, so, I mean, at the state level, I think the usual suspects are always um, available to us. So let's go alphabetically. Alabama always uh, can be counted on. Alabama is in the process right now of engaging in defiance of uh, federal court decisions and federal court orders, including a Supreme Court decision. Um, And this is in the case of Milligan versus Alabama Secretary of State, where the Secretary of State, of course, is defending the redistricting scheme created by Alabama following the 2020 census. That case went all the way up to the Supreme Court. Uh, The case had been rigorously tried. Alabama lost every step of the way, and then they lost in the Supreme Court this term, something they were not expecting. But in a 5-4 decision, Justice uh, Roberts uh, and Justice Kavanaugh came along uh, with the three more progressive justices to find that, indeed, Alabama's redistricting plan had violated Section 2 of the Voting Rights Act by uh, failing to create an additional district that would be majority Black or that would be significantly uh, Black in population and give Black voters an opportunity to elect or strongly influence the election of a second congressional candidate from Alabama. The case then went back to the district court for the state to draw the district that the Supreme Court told them uh, failing to, to draw was had violated the Constitution. Uh, the state openly defied that, refused to do so. And uh, there, was a, there was a story in Politico uh, about a month ago in which various members of the legislature and the Secretary of State and the Attorney General were slapping each other's backs and congratulating each other on not having what they kind of called kowtowing to the Supreme Court's decision, that they were in defiance of it. Uh, they have now been, as of this past week, very harshly rebuked by the district court. The district court is made up of uh, three a three-judge court that reviews these these uh, plans in, in voting rights cases uh, and has been very clear that they see Alabama as being in utter defiance of this federal court order. And the case is now headed back up to the Supreme Court. Um, and Alabama is standing pat in its uh, resistance to that redistricting. Mississippi is always, again, on the list. Uh, they are engaged in a scheme to upend the ability of voters in Jackson to be able to elect judges uh, of their choice and instead shifting that power to the state. I find places like uh, Kentucky and Wisconsin that are doing something even more nefarious than I think we've seen in the past, Rick, which is removing the power held by Democratic elected officials. We saw it first happening with so-called progressive prosecutors, where in Florida, Senator Rick Scott, who was then governor and now Governor DeSantis, removing power and authority from state elected prosecutors who he doesn't like uh, and who consistently happen to be Black women. Uh, although he also removed state authority from a white prosecutor, Andrew Warren, after the prosecutor indicated that he did not intend, if Florida were to pass such a law, to prosecute women seeking abortion. I find these um, efforts, they're happening also in Wisconsin. They happened in North Carolina with the transition uh, of the new governor. And they are happening in Kentucky, where uh, Republican-dominated supermajorities in the legislature are basically, uh, if you elect a Democrat, then they take the power away from them. So it's heads, you win, tails, you lose. And um, and this has the uh, the potential to make voting itself a nullity. 
because it won't matter whether you turn out and win the election. If you do as a Democrat or progressive, they're simply going to take the power away from that elected official. As an ex-Republican and as a, as a guy who grew up in a conservative framework where supposedly the rule of law was the centerpiece of, of conservative philosophy, it's kind of astounding to watch these so-called conservatives run roughshod over the rule of law. I mean, Alabama just completely ignoring the district court, Ron DeSantis in Florida doing what he's doing. On all these cases, they lose and lose and lose on these cases, and they continue to proceed in absolute defiance of it. I mean, Stuart Stevens and I were talking the other day, and he's you know he wrote a book about you know basically saying that race was really the underpinning of all this, um, and, and and you know called it was all a lie. It's a great read. You know, we were talking about this the other day, and in a lot of ways, they're they're going after voting rights stuff. The only you know echo of this in some ways that we can hope for is that. It'll be like school integration. Eventually, the federal government will say, enough. You can't keep playing these games. It's sort of a I, – I, I hate saying how – thinking how thin that read is in a lot of ways, though, because – I hate to say it, Rick, but I think that is the outcome they're hoping for. That, that In other words, they are modeling this on massive resistance to school integration because – Yes, they, they, they were rebuked by federal courts. They were rebuked in Cooper versus Heron, the, Aaron, the Little Rock uh, Nine case. Yep. They were re- rebuked in the Green case. They were rebuked in the Prince Edward County, Virginia case, where they uh, whites had closed the schools for five years right. rather than integrate. They were ultimately rebuked, but this gave them time to create a separate infrastructure, to create segregation academies. Uh, and it gave them t- it gave time for white flight to happen. Uh, and as we look at the level of segregation of our schools today, what we see is that that precious period that was lost during the all deliberate speed <laughs> right. actually had pretty devastating consequences. So I think they actually are precisely modeling on that because they see that as a win and not as a loss. That should concern Americans at a at a pretty profound level, I think. One of the things I've been curious about is the slow erosion of the Voting Rights Act at the federal level. Um, where, where does the, what's the state of play on on cases that are still trying to unwind, even though the even though it's been diminished somewhat? What's the state of play on cases that are trying to unwind the the, the Voting Rights Act? Support for Rick Wilson's The Enemies List comes from Odoo. If you feel like you're wasting time and money with your current business software or just want to know what you could be missing, then you need to join the millions of other users who switched to Odoo. Odoo is the affordable, all-in-one management software with a library of fully integrated business applications that help you get more done in less time for a fraction of the price. To learn more, visit odoo.com slash Wilson. That's O-D-O-O dot com slash Wilson. Odoo. Modern management made simple. I mean, I think we are not out of the woods by any stretch of the imagination. We obviously have the Supreme Court having essentially decimated the most effective and powerful tool, which was Section 5, um, right. which was you know the preclearance requirement. If you think about it, Section 5, which required jurisdictions that had a history of engaging in voting discrimination to submit any voting changes for preclearance by a federal authority before they went into, before they were enacted, was created precisely for the Alabama redistricting situation that we're dealing with right now, right? Where you have a recalcitrant jurisdiction that will not, that they have violated section two, right? 
but um, and the court has found it has gone all the way to the Supreme Court and they don't care. Right. And what's the result of that? The result, of course, is, um, as we know, when this case first went up to the Supreme Court, it ended up on the shadow docket and the court mm-hmm. just decided uh, by an emergency order that it was too close to the election for them to enjoin the new map. <laughs> right. The election was nine months away, but that was still too close. And so in 2022, right, um, this is where there's national significance. And of course, this happened in Alabama and uh, two other cases, you know, one of which is headed to the Supreme Court this term, um, which is the South Carolina redistricting case, I believe Louisiana is as well. So you've got three cases, right, in which, you know, the court plays a vital role by using the shadow docket to refuse to make those changes. And the result is that for the 2022 midterms, you have a very different outcome in the House of Representatives than you might have had, had the court recognized that uh, these defendants had a, did not have a likelihood of success on the merits, which in Alabama, they ended up not being successful on the merits, and right. had allowed <laughs> districts to go forward that would have amply represented Black voters. And so there are national consequences to that as well. So the court is, is a player in this. The court weakened Section 2 in the Brnovich case two summers ago in a decision written by Justice Alito. So Section 2 holds on, but uh, is, is, you know, is, has been weakened as well. Uh, the Supreme Court's creation of that Purcell doctrine that I referenced just a moment ago, mm-hmm, in mm-hmm. which the court said, well, you know, you, you don't make changes when it's too close to an election, but never told us how close is too close. We're now finding out that nearly a year before an election apparently is too close. So, we, you know, the court has been doing its role. And of course, you know, John Roberts and Justice Alito, Chief Justice Roberts and Justice Alito have uh, long been deeply skeptical about, if not hostile, to the Voting Rights Act. Mm -hmm. And so there's no reason to be uh, optimistic. We definitely dodged a huge bullet with the Milligan case this past term. Right. Maybe a reward for the court uh, tearing down so many other precedents and and, uh, protective statutes. But I don't think we're out of the woods by any stretch of the imagination. So I want to switch tracks a little bit because you uh, have been making some observations about the 14th Amendment and whether or not Donald Trump can be kept off the ballot in 2024. I'm not an attorney, but my gut tells me people should not invest too much in this in this belief because it it strikes me as a as a as a long reach. He may be guilty of these things, maybe and maybe should be kept off the ballot. I'm not sure we live in a world where we're, where we are that where we are that lucky. So can you talk just a little bit about where the 14th Amendment comes into play here and, and whether, whether you think people should be more cautious about this or, or less cautious about this in terms of its possible impact on 2024? Yeah. I mean, I think there's two ways to think about this, Rick. One is about politics and one is about law and, and democracy. Sure. Um, and so let's hold on the, you know, off on the politics, which is important and which I have a view about, but but I want to talk first about law because I do think that at this moment, um, Rick, that where we are really in a in democratic crisis, it is incumbent upon us to do a bit of a forensic of how we got here. Which I appreciate you and Stuart Stevens and other either ex Republicans or at least never Trumpers have begun to do. But I think it's actually something the whole country has to do. And one of the things we have to recognize is that there has really been a failure to engage the tools that we have been given to protect our democracy. Right. And largely that's because we have not faced the kind of threat that we that Donald Trump presented in that 
we did have a democracy that functioned with laws at their core, and you talked about the rule of law, but also with norms and ethics sure, and a set of unwritten rules and comedy. By comedy, I mean C-O-M-I-T-Y. M-I-T-Y, yes. uh, and, th- and those things were valuable and important. And, and what Donald Trump brought to the table, he did not create racism. He did not create voter suppression. He did not create political dysfunction. He did not create political division. But he certainly wrecked all of those soft tools that we relied on for the action of public officials and elected officials in particular. And it has pushed us back to rely more heavily on law. And I believe that we have to do that because we don't have elected officials uh, who we who are guaranteed to behave in the ways and to respect the kinds of norms that had largely held our system in place without us even having to think about it. So that's number one. Number two, it has always been my belief that in this country, particularly in public life and in political life, there is a near erasure of the 14th Amendment which I regard as being the most powerful and frankly, most important provision of the constitution for modern American life. And uh, this is, you know, the 14th amendment was one of the three civil war amendments enacted after the close of the civil war, the 13th ending slavery, the 15th essentially saying that you could not remove the right to vote based on race, color, or national origin. But the 14th amendment being the core, you know, articulating birthright citizenship, equal protection under laws, that, that phrase of equal, that equality, hearkening us all the way back to the Declaration of Independence, uh, which said that, that all men are created equal, including due process, and for the first time recognizing and reorganizing the relationship between the federal and the state government, and expressing the, the, the reality that state governments could not be trusted when it came to certain kinds of conduct. And so you find language like no state shall, right? Because <laughs> right. essentially the framers are saying, you know, we've stared this down and it's a problem. And in that, so that the, the, we all kind of know, even though we don't engage as passionately and, and, and conversantly as we should, the guarantees of the 14th Amendment. But what we absolutely never talk about are the provisions of the 14th Amendment that were designed to give us tools to protect our democracy against two kinds of threats that those framers had stared down in the face. One was the threat of insurrection, and rebellion. And the other was the threat of white supremacist ideology. And there are three provisions in um, the the uh, 14th Amendment that speak directly to that. One of them is Section 2, which we could talk about another time, which imagines that Southern jurisdictions will still try to keep Black men from voting. At that time, women still had not received the constitutional right to vote and creates a kind of regime by which representation will be reduced in those states that keep black men from voting. Section three is the one that is meant to protect us against insurrectionists and those who are engaged in aid and comfort of insurrectionists who may try to undermine our democracy. That means number one, those framers recognize that this was still a threat Mm -hmm. or else they wouldn't have included it in the constitution. It could have been in the statute. And they wanted us to have the power. And what that uh, section says, um, uh, Rick, and I won't bother reading the whole thing, But it doesn't say anything about crimes or indictments. It says that um, that anyone who has engaged shall have engaged in insurrection or rebellion against the same or given aid or comfort to the enemies thereof. 
they, those people shall not serve in either federal or state office. So there's no criminal conviction required, no indictment required. And I think that this is an incredibly sound case. As a matter of fact, I think that Section 3 was created for precisely the white elephant. And by white elephant, I mean the unusual thing that we don't really face. <laughs> yes. this, is not a, this is not a slur on the weight of the former president. <laughs> but it, 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 is, it is about the thing that you don't encounter, which is what has happened to us. Sure. Which is that we could not have predicted a Donald Trump, not that he would exist, but that he would curry the kind of favor and turn himself into a cult-like figure and um, be as explicit as he has been about undermining American democracy. That is what it was created for. And so it is absolutely on point. Now, it would require, to go to the political point, judges to have the courage to recognize that they are faced with this constitutional provision. What is both, I think, um, intimidating but also exciting about it is it's not been often used and certainly not at the level of the president. So, but why has it not been used? Because we have not faced at the level of the president sure. um, someone <laughs> who's, who actually has tried to and participated with others in trying to overturn our democracy. So the fact that it's not been used, I'm sure will frighten and intimidate some judges, but it hasn't been used for a good reason. It doesn't mean that therefore it is never to be used. It is a tool that the framers of the 14th Amendment included so that we could protect ourselves against precisely this threat. Now, the politics, maybe you know the politics better than I, but my own view is that the, the politics cannot drive this any more than indicting Donald Trump for uh, alleged crimes should be driven by politics. There are people who said, don't prosecute Trump. It will only make him more popular. It will only make his followers more fervent. It only gives him uh, an opportunity to play the victim. That may all be true. That doesn't change what the legal dynamic is and what is required by law. And I think our failure to apply that and to recognize that is our own step away from democracy. Once we have decided that this person is too dangerous for us to apply the law to him, we have become participants in the unraveling of our democracy ourselves. Back in 2015, when I was still a Republican, I was warning my fellow Republicans, like, don't keep making exceptions to the rules for this guy. If you do it politically, it will metastasize. It will get worse and worse and more and more dangerous, and he will ask for more and more. My Southern grandmother used to say, you know, if you keep throwing that alligator food off the dock, when you run out of food, it's going to eat you. And these, these guys, I don't think, ever realized that the political lift they thought they would get out of him in the beginning – transformed into fear of him and now they 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 they're they're hesitant to to follow the law even though you know they they secretly loathe and despise him but they're afraid of even using the 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 rule of law appropriately and constitutionally because they're afraid of him his followers killing them i mean that that doesn't strike me as a healthy democracy <laughs> right and what they say you know it's like a, that's we've already lost then right yeah. and what they what they say is let him lose at the ballot box. Right. We did that. He did lose yeah. at the ballot box, right? right? And then attacked in, the in Capitol. In the middle of a global pandemic with voter suppression and voter intimidation, I was leading the NAACP Legal Defense Fund at the time and, and, and leading some of you know the, the most on-the-edge voting rights efforts. And what we saw, what I saw in, in voter suppression and voter intimidation that year was extraordinary in the, in the primary in particular and in the general 
We saw people standing online for nine hours to vote. We saw um, drive-bys at polling places with armed folks with Confederate flags. You know, we saw the whole thing. We, you know, we had to sue the post office to make sure that absentee ballots would be delivered, so on and so forth. And despite all of that, record numbers of voters came out and chose to rebuke Trumpism and to elect uh, Joe Biden. And to put a put a, a fine point on it, they came back out a month and a half later in Georgia. Ninety seven percent of the voters who came out for the general in November came out for the special in January, which is unheard of in a special absolutely. election. Absolutely. Absolutely. Right. And they elected the first black senator from the state since Reconstruction and only the second statewide Jewish uh, representative as Senate as a senator. So they they handed the Senate to the Democrats and elected Joe Biden. That happened when people say, oh, you know, he, he should lose at the ballot box. He did lose at the ballot box. So that was January 5th, the special election. And then what happened a day later? January 6th. Mm-hmm. January 6th. So obviously the answer, <clears throat> sure, of course, we have to get out and vote. We have to make sure that um, you're in the strongest position. But I can see nothing in what has happened over the last five years that suggests to us that we should lay down any tool, let alone a constitutional tool, in the fight to protect our democracy at this moment. I think it was a really good point to, to bifurcate the legal option and the political option. The political path is really hard. The legal path, though, is a path that we should be taking, even if it doesn't work politically. I, I think you're right. I think we ought to we ought to push that as far as it can go, because if the anti-democracy side of the equation feels empowered all the time to push and push and push and nothing gets and nothing happens to them, um, not, there's no there's no legal or political sanction against them, then they'll keep pushing. They'll always try to, you know, they'll, they'll keep crawling up the dock once you're out of once you're out of treats. And, and I'll tell you, you know, don't be fooled by Donald Trump. The thing he does fear is law. He does. Oh, yes. Mary Trump told me very directly, she said, his greatest terror is that he will go to prison. Yeah. I mean, you know, he's a serial lawbreaker. So, yeah, that's what he fears. And so <laughs> I just think, I just think, you know, giving away our power is so such a mistake and, and can really be fatal. And when I say we and fatal, I mean to our democracy. And I mean to the we is people who want to live in a democracy. We are a flawed yeah. and catastrophically unhealthy democracy at this moment. But if we want to hold on to the remnant so that we can build the health of uh, our democracy, then we have to be bold and we have to be brave and we have to use uh, the tools that are available to us. And I, for one, am not going to lay down and would not counsel people to lay down the tool that was created by the only framers who stared this kind of challenge in the face. Exactly, and thank you so much for making that 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 point on the Fourteenth Amendment because it was it was what I've been looking forward to asking you in in a, in a big way because my political gut, you know, I, is I'm just too much of a realist and too burned out over the years to uh, to know on the political side how hard it is. But but I think that was a really passionate and and brilliant exposition of why we need to push forward on it. So yeah, and and just so you know, you know, so I'm moving to Howard Law School to take the Vernon Jordan chair, as you pointed out. And, and I'm launching a, the 14th Amendment Center on Law and Democracy precisely Terrific. to um, to refresh <laughs> an engagement with the 14th Amendment and to try to center it, you know, in our in our discourse about who we are as a nation and 
and its values and its cautions um, and to make us feel more comfortable with describing ourselves and moving forward as a democracy in a 14th Amendment context. Well, Sherilyn Eiffel, I cannot thank you enough for joining us today on The Enemies List. What a great interview, and I am deeply appreciative of your time today. And uh, we look forward to talking to you again very soon. Thanks so much, Rick. Thank you. So, folks, look, I I know this sounds like low-hanging fruit for The Enemies List this week because it's low-hanging fruit. But it's you, Kevin McCarthy. Once again, you gigantic weak dipshit. Look, I know you think, oh, I'm gonna I'm gonna face down Matt Gates and Marjorie Taylor Greene and I'm gonna hold my job. But the cost of holding your job, Kevin, over and over and over and over and over again isn't to accomplish some conservative goal, but to side again and again and again with the arsonists. Again and again and again with the people who want to burn this country down. So right now, you've decided you're going to save your own ass. You're going to back a a, a phony impeachment play against Biden. You know it's bullshit. Everyone knows it's bullshit. You know absolutely that no matter that Jim Jordan and Comer and the rest of those dipshits could dig for a billion years and they're not going to find an impeachable offense. It's all performance art. It's all a stunt. It's just you protecting your own sorry ass. And you know, Kevin, there there have been times when you've played to donors, and I know it because I talk to them, where you say things like, I'm just keeping the crazy under control. I, without me, you'll have Marjorie Taylor Greene and Matt Gates running this operation. Without me, the darkness falls. Well, Kevin, you are the fucking darkness, bro. You are causing the country the chaos. And I will I will say one more thing. You may keep the painting up on the wall and you may keep the office and you may keep the security detail for a little while longer, but you will go down in history as a speaker of the house with the most weak, pathetic and failed reputation of almost anyone in the history of this country. You could have stood up at any number of times. You could have been a real man in full at any number of times and said, I won't do this. No, I will crack the whip. But instead, you let the crazies run the show. You keep feeding the alligator. You sit on the, as my grandmother used to say, you can sit on the end of the dock with your feet in the water and throw fried chicken at that alligator all day. And that fried chicken will keep eating that, or that alligator will keep eating that fried chicken. But when you're out of fried chicken, it's going to eat you. And Kevin, you're all out of fried chicken. And you are on the enemies list. Thanks again for listening to The Enemies List. If you have any comments, questions, or if there's someone you'd like to hear on the podcast, hit me up on Twitter at TheRickWilson. Thanks again for the wonderful support you've shown the pod. We're growing fast. It really helps if you will share this with your friends, your family, and anyone else who, like us, is trying to save democracy. While you're at it, if you could rate and review the podcast, I would be very much appreciative. I know this is the sort of thing you've heard a billion times. Please rate, review, like, blah, blah, blah. But you need to do it. It really does help us a lot. We are slaves to the algorithm, my friends. And if you do this, it will help get the pod out further. Anyway, thanks again for listening. I'll see you next time. And remember, whatever you do, stay off the list.